electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm John Fort in for Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. No landing, no K. The Fed needs the economy to soften, but today's retail data showing no signs of it. We look at why this could become a problem for the Fed and how you want to be positioned in this market right now. This as the banks are back in focus. Pitch warning of possible downgrades ahead, including big ones like J.P. Morgan. So does this latest credit warning carry more weight? We will debate. And mortgage rates surging over 7%. Home builder sentiment dropping sharply. Have buyers reached their limit on how much they're willing to pay for a home? We will talk to a builder about what he sees. But we begin with the markets in Bob Pisani at NICE. Bob? John, the bottom line here is we're just off the lows for the day, down about 0.9% for the S&P and the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And we've been down 9 out of 11 days on the S&P 500 if we close lower today. So that trend is very noticeable. Dow Industrials, you see, down about the same amount, being held up largely by defensive names. But some of the other sectors like banks and energy are notably on the weak side. NASDAQ down there, look at that, 0.8%. We're down about 5% off of the recent 52-week highs for the NASDAQ. When you start getting more than 5%, the technicians start noticing. Tech's been an under performer. Take a look at the Dow movers here. Uh, the good news is you get, you know, oh, there's just, uh, there you go, Johnson & Johnson holding up well. Defensive names like Merck, Procter & Gamble generally holding up. But other former leaders like industrial stocks like Caterpillar have been weak recently. Uh, energy stocks have been coming off of their highs after a terrific run. The oil was moving up in the mid-80s. Uh, it's been down for the last couple of days. Take a look. Uh, I think at a key sh- chart, chart to look at is the bank stocks because they're starting to exhibit very negative patterns, what we call head and shoulder patterns here. So there's Key Corp, which was, uh, oh, what, $10, went to $13. Uh, this is for the quarter that we're talking about. And now it's back down to 10 That's a, certainly a negative sign uh, for people who are trying to uh, figure out whether or not they want to accumulate these stocks on a long-term basis. And this is true of even bigger ones. This is sort of a mid-level uh, regional bank. Even some of the larger financial stocks, you see that head and shoulders look there for Goldman Sachs here. So Goldman Sachs, was, oh, 325, 328 the start of the quarter. It went to 360. And you see it's been trending down here back towards where it was in the beginning of the quarter. Again, that's a that's a head and shoulders top right now and doesn't send a good sign for people who want accumulate. So what's the problem right now? I talk about the pain trade all the time. What would cause the greatest amount of discomfort to the greatest amount of traders out there? The market is positioned for a soft landing. So what would cause the biggest problem is if that soft landing got messed around with. What would mess it around? Suddenly strong growth, like the retail sales numbers that we had this morning, and higher yields, which is exactly what we're getting. You know those 10-year yields have been moving to the upside. Uh, And, John, that's been a major problem. Steve Leisman's been talking about the no-landing scenario, and the pain trade fits in exactly with that idea. No-landing meaning interest rates keep moving up, and the economy remains much stronger than people anticipated. That is indeed what's going on. Well, Bob, we ought to talk to this Steve Leisman of whom you speak. Uh, Retail sales coming in stronger than expected this morning. Thanks, Bob. Spending for the month of July up by 0.7%, while spending excluding autos, prices of autos coming down, 
that came in at 1%, beating expectations. And while stronger retail sales might seem great for the economy, our very own, yes, Steve Leisman argues that the Fed needs softer data to prevent a no-landing scenario. Steve joins in for more along with Macro Policy Perspectives President Julia Carnado. Uh, Steve, you know, Bob teased you up right there. Uh, you know, okay, the retail sales overall were strong, but unpack that for us, because in Home Depot's results, they said the consumer was weaker. It was actually the pros who were continuing to spend. So isn't there some underlying consumer weakness in there, too? Yeah, there, there could be. And you want to be really careful. You know, uh, you don't want to take Home Depot's uh, results as those for the nation, nor take the nation's results as those for Home Depot. Uh, you wait till you get a bunch of other retailers. I guess we have a bunch this week. Mm -hmm. And uh, listen not to Steve Lees, but to Courtney Reagan, because she's going to know what's going on. But I'll tell you a couple things. Um, uh, let, me, let me repack before I unpack here, uh, uh, John, which is that if you look at what's happened to GDP estimates for this quarter as a result of this number today, the Atlanta Fed GDP now, it tends to be on the high side at the beginning of quarters when they start off, uh, but still it's running at 5%. Uh, Mark Zandi just emailed me, told me his number is 4.3%. We had a couple other upgrades. The CNBC rapid update, a much more sober look at what's going on, is 2.5%. Even that number is high, and I'll explain why. If you take a look at where the Fed thought GDP was going to be this year, they had a 1% number built in for their uh, average of all the Fed members and their forecasts. We're running, call it the last four quarters, 2.5% on average. Why is that important? Well, because it's above potential. A number above potential is not creating slack. And in the absence of slack, it's hard to be confident that inflation will go down and stay yes. down. Unemployment, same thing. They were looking for 4.1%. Now, now they're getting 3.5%. 3, and in my calculations, John... Unemployment has to be 4.9% for the rest of the year for the uh, unemployment rate to average 4.1 by the end of the year. So, so there'd be an awful lot of work to do to get there. So, Steve, th this really flies in the face of what so many, uh, you know, some economists, but people in the market have been saying about expecting rate cuts in the relatively near future, right? I, I mean, if, if the economy is still yeah. pretty strong, then we might not be talking higher than now for longer, but we're, we're talking remaining high for perhaps a longer time than some people in the market have been expecting. Well, th that's what a, a no-landing scenario does. It does keep on the table the possibility of rate hikes, and they are up a little bit. The market's still not buying into the probability of a rate hike this year, but it's now 35%. It had been back below 30 um, and it also keeps on the table these higher rates for longer mm. and would start to deteriorate the case for near-term rate cuts, which are built in for the spring of next year right now in the Fed Fund futures market. But uh, maybe that gets extended on because the Fed, I think, would lack the confidence that inflation is not only going to go down but stay down if the economy is running above potential. So, Julia Coronado, um, what do you do here uh, as you play this market, do you accumulate bonds that you plan to hold on to for a while if we're not going to uh, have, uh, you know, rates coming down for a while now? Well, I think the higher for longer scenario is is where uh, where we seem to be uh, landing here in terms of the data tracking. You know, you've got um, the consumers benefiting actually from this uh, the immaculate disinflation, they've got a boost to their purchasing power because inflation is coming down without labor market weakness. 
Now, it's not the job of the Fed to kill that. That should be good news as long as inflation continues to come down. They've been wrong about inflation before. They, it might take less economic weakness to bring inflation down. That would be a productivity story. And that's the key for the earnings season now. Are companies telling us that, yes, top line growth is moderate, certainly a lot moderate than it was in the last couple of years. But on the other hand, they're seeing some better operational efficiencies from reduced supply chain frictions, from reduced labor market turnover. These are the things that could open up a new phase of the expansion, although it would mean that the Fed can keep rates higher for longer. They don't mm. need to necessarily go further, but they would probably hold here. And we're seeing the long end of the curve really push upward. Uh, and that can take its toll on the economy over time. So, Julia, mortgage rates are at new highs. That's housing's expensive. Julia, so often when we talk about stock picking, we're talking about what to buy. Maybe too often. Maybe we should be talking about what to sell because a week ago would have been a good time to sell the regional banks, right? Today, down the KRE is down 3%, uh, you know, around 45 dollars 45 cents it was up near 49 bucks not long ago after you know rallying up from the i think a 39 ish range when it was low so given everything that's happening in the market right now maybe it's less clear what to buy but do you have any thoughts on what to sell uh you know look i think the greatest vulnerabilities in the economy right now are not so much in the u.s or the u.s consumer it's really about the global backdrop i think the data we're seeing out of china uh, the data, even in Europe, really suggest, uh, you know, while the U.S. is a bright spot, there's a lot of weakening in global momentum. So uh, companies and industries that are really reliant on that global growth story uh, are, are probably going to feel uh, the pain of that in the coming months. Um, I think also, you know, housing is a sector that has gotten a bit stuck uh, with uh, people not wanting to sell their homes because uh, they've got low rate mortgages. We really haven't had the price discovery that we need to have. If rates are going to stay here, housing is not in an equilibrium. Uh, and so we will have sort of a probably fits and starts to this housing adjustment as we adjust to the reality, mm. or at least what seems right now, like the reality of higher rates this cycle. Yeah, with inventory so low, it's hard to see exactly how this unravels. Uh, Julia, Steve, thank you. Uh, now to another downgrade that could be coming for the banking industry. Fitch warning it might be forced to cut the credit ratings of dozens of banks, including big ones like J.P. Morgan. CNBC.com's Hugh Sun broke that story. Our next guest covers large cap banks for RBC and says while credit ratings matter, the timing of this warning and the reasons cited for it are off. Gerard Cassidy joins me now with more. Gerard, welcome. I mean, the, the reasons are off. Maybe the timing is off. But given where valuations are, could this be a signal that they're not going to get a lot richer? It's very interesting because the valuations today for the banks are quite inexpensive when you look at it from a price-to-book or price-to-changeable book basis. We have to remember that... Due to the accounting regulations, the banks are taking out of their book values the unrealized bond losses in their available for sale portfolio. And those portfolios, of course, are government guaranteed uh, securities or government securities. So there's no credit risk. It's a duration issue. So those book values. 
the, 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 the book values will certainly grow as those unrealized losses come back into book value. Okay. But what's also interesting. What's also interesting is that, you know, they are concerned, Fitch, about rising rates. And should the Fed be at its terminal rate for Fed funds, uh, which may be the case in September, then it's quite positive for the banks because banks do quite well after the Fed finishes reaching the terminal rate. Um, it's taken a while for banks to uh, start passing along to depositors the benefits of those rates. How much of a discrepancy is there between uh, how well off the largest banks are and uh, some of the regional banks? I know there's a huge spread on the different sizes of the regionals, but even some of the larger regional banks here um, that, that perhaps are going to be looked to to be active in consolidating the regional banks, what's the risk there? It's going to be interesting because for all of the banks, whether it's a regional or a money center bank, um, when the Fed in the last four tightening cycles, when they've reached the terminal rate for Fed funds, meaning it doesn't go up any higher, within six months, the deposit rates or deposit beta for these banks stops going higher. However, the cash flows coming off of the securities portfolios and loan portfolios continue to be reinvested at higher yields than the current portfolio that they're coming out of. And as a result, the margins stabilize and improve. Right. So therefore, I think you're going to find regionals and the money centers benefit. Plus, should the forward yield curve be accurate and we start seeing Fed fund rate cuts next year, the custody banks are the ones that are the biggest beneficiaries because they've passed on the most of the rate increases to their customers already. So they'll be the quickest to cut when the Fed starts cutting. Right. You say when the Fed starts cutting. We were just talking about that with Steve Leisman and Julia Coronado. It might not come as soon as some hoped. And when you factor that in, along with the commercial real estate issues that we see both with office and increasingly with multifamily residential, isn't that a danger on the books of some of these regional banks that makes this different from what we've seen in previous cycles? Well, it depends. It really is going to, again, hire for longer, as your prior uh, um, um, folks were talking about, uh, commentaries were mentioning. That's quite positive for the banks. Uh, once we get to the terminal rate, and let's let's assume for a moment Fed funds says that five and a half, six percent through all of 24. That is very positive for the banks because, again, the cost of funding stops going up, but the yields continue to rise on the asset side. Well, so for they the get banks, more revenue. But what about for the borrowers who have you know, these loans out on commercial real estate that are going to need to roll no. them over? If it's bad for those borrowers, it's not good for the banks for long, right? Yeah. So, so now, great point. So now let's go to the commercial real estate borrower. So if the borrower has a 3.5% fixed rate mortgage on the property that was taken out five years ago. The property's you know, cash flowing fine, but now they have to refinance in a 7% market, and it's harder, or not 7, but let's call it 5. Um, it's, it's more difficult. But the banks work with those customers. The banks don't foreclose on properties like that. They work with the customers. The customers have to come up with maybe more cash for equity as a down payment, or they have to build out different tranches of debt, but they can work with them. But to your point, on commercial real estate, where there's big defaults, 
because the buildings are half empty, they're not cash flowing, that's a real problem. But so far, most of those problems are not in the commercial banking industry, but the shadow banking industry with the commercial mortgage-backed securities. Mm -hmm. That's where the problems are happening right now. But is that something to watch here then? Is that supply of real estate, commercial real estate on the market? If people start to throw their hands in and say, okay, more and more we're willing to take the hit here and do this sale for less than we paid and supply comes onto the market, then all of a sudden, right, a lot of people, including some banks, have a problem, right? I, I would say, no, that, that's fair. I mean, what you're going to see uh, is are more as those properties are foreclosed upon. Uh, they're going to be sold at fire sale prices already. You know, alternative investors, alternative asset managers are building up their war chests to buy these properties at, let's say, 30, 40, 50 cents on the dollar. They'll refurbish them and there'll be new competition. Yes, that, that will certainly be an impact. But that doesn't happen over three or six months. That's a multi-year, you know, kind of change. But will it weigh on property values? Yes. Will it weigh on some of the banks? Yes. Mm -hmm. But is this a 2008 or 1990 cataclysmic collapse? Absolutely not. We don't see that happening in the commercial real estate markets for the banks. Okay. Shadow banks, that's different. CMBS, there's real serious problems going on right now there. I guess we'll see what happens first. Significant yeah. rate cuts or supply of some of this commercial real estate coming onto the market. That's a lot of what matters here. Gerard Cassidy, thank you. Thank you, sir. All right, coming up, Berkshire Hathaway betting on the builders, revealing new stakes in DR Horton, NVR, and Lennar. But the threat of higher rates continues to weigh on sentiment. We're going to get the latest reading and speak with the first vice chair of the NAHB, who is himself a builder, next. Plus, stocks in the red after today's mixed data. That is partly why our market guest says being selective matters now more than ever. He will join us with his top picks ahead. The exchange is back after this. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Mortgage rates holding above 7%, and now they're back front and center for the home builders. Diana Olick has the details. Diana. 
Well, John, builders are blaming higher mortgage rates, among other things, for a drop in buyer interest, and that hit builders' sentiment hard in August. It fell six points to 50 on the National Association of Home Builders Index. That's the first drop in seven months and the lowest since May when it last rose to 50, which is the line between positive and negative sentiment. The builders say rising mortgage rates, high construction costs due to a lack of workers, and not enough buildable lots are the big issues. But rates are the biggest. The 30-year fixed hit seven. 7.26% today, according to Mortgage News Daily. Rates have been over 7% for several weeks now, and that's making, of course, home buying less affordable. Of the builder's index, three components. Current sales conditions fell five points to 57. Sales expectations in the next six months dropped four points to 55. And buyer traffic dropped the most down six points to 34. That one well into negative territory. And the builders also said they're going back to incentives again. After dropping sharply for four months, the share of builders cutting prices rose in August to 25% from 22 in July, and the share of builders using all types of incentives rose to 55%, higher than in July, which was 52%, still lower, though, than December of last year, when that share was 62%. And just one more factoid, the mortgage bankers just reported that demand for FHA loans to buy newly built homes is continuing to rise, meaning first-time buyers who usually don't go for new because they can't afford it, they're trying into, to get into new construction, John. Yeah, makes sense, I guess, because in some cases, new is, is more available, if not more affordable. <laughs> in all Diana. cases. Yeah, thanks. Let's get some more perspective on where the builders go from here with a builder. Joining us now is Carl Harris. He's the first vice chairman of the National Association of Home Builders and a Kansas-based small volume spec and custom home builder. Carl, how long can this go on with the builders giving incentives to lower prices enough to make up for these high interest rates? Well, thanks again for having us. Um, it's always good to talk about home building and home builder issues, and we're hoping it's not going to be going on much longer. Um, we saw that the home HMI go down every month last year. It was good to see it rise this year, but with what's going on with the Fed and the rising rates and the cost of, of financing, it's... Um, it's pretty tough. And so we're really hoping that it's not going to be long. We're hoping that the Fed chair will will um, pause for a while and let everything kind of um, smooth out a bit well, so that even, we don't have to chase these rates up. Even if we get a pause for a while, but these rates stay pretty high, which is a scenario that we're talking about now, um, how far into 24 can this situation last if we start to get uh, more inventory on the market and, you know, some sellers willing to accept lower prices, might that change the, uh, the overall dynamic in the market? It could, but we've seen a lot of people wanting to stay in their homes longer. So we've seen the new home market really take a larger share of the housing available for sale. And so there's, we've captured a big part of the market, uh, new home sales versus existing homes because people are just unwilling to give up that 2.9% financing and think that they're going to go for 7.26. Yeah, but that's what I wonder is one of, the, one of the ways that this could start to unwind is that a few more people say, okay, I'm going to put my home up for sale 
and you know, maybe we'll downsize, and, and, and that'll make it feel better. So yeah, we'll, we'll have to pay more than we wanted, but we'll get a smaller place, we'll make do. If that inventory comes on the market and people have more choice, whether they go new or go used, I imagine uh, you know, certain builders are going to be at a disadvantage. Is that going to matter more based on the, the tier of how much the homes cost? Is it going to matter more based on geography? You know, it's been really tough these last few years. Since the pandemic, we've seen prices rise on new homes 36%. And um, a lot of that has to do with the availability of products, um, appliances, um, a, an available workforce. Um, builders have had a tough time. And so we're, we're just going to have to compete. But wherever the sales occur, it opens up a home for somebody else. So what well, about getting people into homes? What about the Airbnb, Verbo, HomeAway factor? It, it seems like there are a certain number of homes out there that are not occupied all the time. And, you know, the owners of those homes have expected that they're going to get cash flow off of them and, and therefore keep them. Um, they don't have to keep those homes or live in them if they think the market isn't going to be friendly to them. Is that something that you think about? Is that more of a regional issue? I think it is a regional issue, but it is a market-driven issue. And we, we are about market-based housing choices for those who want to who purchase those for whatever reason, either investment or, or to live in themselves. We're we're really about creating housing choices for all. How is your home buyer different right now? Who's buying a Harris home? Is it uh, more people who are upgrading uh, because their pay has gone up and their family has grown versus they just want more space? Is it more necessity driven? Um, and how has that shifted over the past five years? Um, we have seen it, it shift. We've seen a lot more downsizing or right sizing, meaning that we've seen people who have capitalized on the great appreciation that's occurred in the marketplace. And now they want to have a house that is best suited for them. And then we're also seeing those growing families that need the five bedroom, three bath home. But in the last couple of years, the, um, the increase has been on the cash buyer. And so the cash buyers are probably running thinner now. So now we're probably looking at those are having to go for the, um, the financing over 30 years or 15. Yeah, and that's where the rates come back in. Ouch. We'll see how long they stay that high. Carl Harris, thank you from Harris. Thank Holmes. you. Coming up, new filings revealing which big name investors bought into the big tech rally last quarter. We will break down the trends and the trades. And as we had to break, here's a look at the sector heat map with all 11 groups in the red. Energy, materials and financials, the worst performers. The exchange is back after this. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. 
I'm Bertha Coombs with your CNBC News update. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp fired back at former President Donald Trump after he announced a press conference in response to the latest indictment. Kemp posted a screenshot of Trump's announcement on Truth Social, and the governor wrote on X that the Georgia election was not stolen and that there is no evidence of election fraud. The U.S. is seeing a record increase in homeless people this year as the pandemic fades. The Wall Street Journal reviewed data that showed an 11 percent jump, the biggest recorded uptake since the government started tracking numbers back in 2007. Nonprofits and government agencies say the surge highlights pressures around the country, including rising housing costs, lack of affordable housing and the opioid crisis. And YouTube will start removing false claims about cancer treatments as part of its medical misinformation policy. The platform will prohibit content that promotes cancer treatments proven to be harmful or ineffective or content that discourages viewers from seeking medical treatment. This is the latest update to YouTube's policy, which also prohibits false claims about vaccines and abortions. A lot of misinformation on social out there, John. All right, Bertha, thank you. And coming up, the market's wall of worry is growing, according to our next guest, but he still sees a path for the S&P to hit 5,000 by next summer. That would be up 12% from today's levels. We'll ask how we could get there and how to position next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks lowered today with more scrutiny of U.S. banks and more growth concerns out of China. Both are items on my next guest's wall of worry, which he says been better than feared so far. And while they may lead to pullbacks, this rally is real. For more on where we go from here, how you want to be positioned, let's bring in Jeff Krumpelman, chief investment strategist at Mariner Wealth Advisors an alum of the great DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana. <laughs> great to have you. Okay, so let's talk about um, these worries here. 12% you think we could be up a year from now. That You're going to have to convince me on this one. How do we get there? Well, I don't think it's a straight shot to up 12% at all. And in fact, you know, we've been one of the few voices, John, that we, we've, I think I, it, it's not positive. I think it's measured. And we've had a 4,500 price target on the S&P 500 by year end uh, 2023, going into the year, we felt that way. And we just thought people would become uber negative. It's going to be just meltdown on all of these Wall of Worry items. Earnings are going to implode, and we're going to have a major recession. That was the story. And the way we saw it, it, it wasn't great, but it was middle of the road. And there was not evidence of that. So our message was, if the prior three years had taken you to well above your asset allocation target to stocks, cut back to neutral or normal. Mm -hmm. Don't sell down below that. Don't buy into the dip, but go back to normal and enjoy the ride that we thought would lean towards that 4,500 level. Okay, so are you still at 4,500 for year end? So you just expect a really great start to 2024. I do. I think that we didn't see it as swift as it was. I wouldn't have expected to be at 4,500 by now. <laughs> we are. So we enjoyed the ride, and we also said to folks, don't just run to value and defense like a lot of folks were suggesting. Have that blend of growth and value, and boy, a lot of these are on sale. But yeah, I think that we're probably going to just tread water, and active selection is going to be very important if you're looking for returns 
um, in positive territory for the balance of the year in any meaningful, meaningful way. But then through by 2024, mid-year, we're thinking 5,000, 4,800, 5,000 as we move into 2024. I don't see how you get there without big tech remaining strong and maybe even getting stronger. And it's so like uh, overweight uh, versus where it normally is. What keeps that going? Well, you know, big tech, we're neutral on big tech. Uh, we've outperformed in a strategy so far, our most aggressive strategy, pretty handsomely by being a little underweight big tech, the hmm. mega eight. And that's because broadly technology looks really good. Consumer discretionary also has been on fire. And so the Russell's got to run like crazy. Is this in effect a bet on small and mid caps if you're neutral on big tech, but you still think the S&P is up 12% a year from now? No, I think, I think it's over-advertised it's been a narrow market. You can argue, sure, there's all kinds of statistics that can support that point. I can tell you of a number of stocks that are up 40, 50, 100% this year, that, and they ain't Apple. Okay, so tell <laughs> okay. us about them. Give us a specific. Okay. What do you like? Do you like? Uh, so within consumer discretionary, there's just a plethora of them. You got, uh, you know, Tesla fits in that group, but outside of the Mega 8, you have Deckers, you have Bookings, you have Royal Caribbean. People are cruising again, for goodness sakes. And they are spending and drinking and eating and having a good time. Uh, so within consumer, there's a lot. Within tech, I'd, I'd call out uh, Palo Alto, Synopsys. Mm. Um, They've got earnings coming up. They do. And I think that as Apple and these others are looking for uh, designing their own ships, making their own ships, Synopsys fits you know, right in there as a growth driver. Service would you now, be buyers of both? Because Palo Alto's got earnings at the end of the week, too. I would. Okay. I would. I would. We own them, okay, okay in full disclosure. Uh, ServiceNow would fall in that uh, category. Adobe. Arista. I mean, these are all names that are not mega eight that I think are positioned very well uh, for the drive for productivity, the drive for green, cloud, all those things. They're not going away. What do you do with financials, if anything? So we're a little, we're cautious on financials and have been. And I would argue that if you believe that the U.S. is, is not going to suffer uh, a uncomfortable recession, a lot of folks then would say, well, let's go to the cyclicals, let's go to financials. I'd say be a little careful, be very selective. We underown them a little bit. Go to industrials. There is a capital spending boom. If you want cycle, you want economically tethered growth, uh, go to the industrials and the materials. And I, there, we love some names there. All right. Um, so, just give me two real quick. United Rental uh -huh. and Eaton. Okay. Appreciate it. Sure. Jeff Grumpleman. Yeah. Great to have you. Thanks, John. Still ahead, some of the biggest investors made some big tech moves in the last quarter. A closer look at how they played the tech rally and AI mania is next. Welcome back. Hedge fund managers revealing their second quarter portfolio moves overnight in 13F filings. But despite the recent tech rally, the world's richest investors seem to be mixed on the sector. Leslie Picker dug into those trades for us in today's Tech Check. Leslie. Hey, John. Yeah, the tech spider ETF XLK gained a whopping 15% during the second quarter. Many of the hedge fund managers we track rode that wave higher, adding to their big tech stakes in the three months through June. Kotu bought big amounts of Amazon, Microsoft, and AMD. Appaloosa boosted exposure to tech broadly, buying shares of Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Intel, Meta, Microsoft, and NVIDIA, pushing 
Square added to its very lucrative Alphabet stake. Fellow sometimes activist Third Point, though, pared back its stake in Alphabet, opting instead for large buys in Amazon, Taiwan Semi, NVIDIA, AMD, and Microsoft. According to HFR, which collects aggregate hedge fund data, tech-focused hedge funds were the best-performing strategy group among the 28 hedge fund strategies they study. Tech funds returned 3.4% in July alone, helping notch gains of about 15% year-to-date. That's about three times the performance of the average hedge fund, although still trailing the S&P. Going long big tech, though, has been the most crowded trade for the fourth month in a row, according to data compiled by Bank of America. So, you know, it's a popular trade, but it's also a crowded trade, which to some could signal that maybe, uh, you know, the good times are, you know, due for some kind of pullback, which we've kind of uh, seen yeah. in the last six weeks. Well, I'm wondering who's thinking differently here mm-hmm. versus, you know, following the crowd. It's sort of like, okay, where they're buying NVIDIA, Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, who wasn't? Right. Um, a, I guess the question is, like you said, where do they go from here? But B, did anybody do anything that's like, oh, well, that was unexpected and maybe smart at yeah. the same time? Well, Tiger Global, in terms of not following the crowd, Tiger Global historically has been a very tech-oriented firm. You want to know what their top buy for the quarter was? What? Apollo. Private equity. Well, I mean, now they say they're not a private equity firm. Alternative investment management firm. Mm. Uh, they were selling out of big tech, actually. Um, you know, their biggest sells were all the, you know, the major big tech names. Biggest buy was Apollo. Um, also thinking potentially differently, although keep in mind, these are just snapshots. They're long equity positions. We don't know how managers are positioned on the short side, but we do sometimes see puts. And so Michael Burry did have a pretty sizable uh, put position on the QQQs and ETF mm-hmm. tracking those. So, you know, maybe a little bit of bearish there, bearishness there. It could also be, of course, portfolio protection, maybe some hedging against other positions. We don't actually know. Uh, my colleague Yoon Lee um, on the dot-com side reached out to him, but I don't believe she's heard back on specifics, you know, uh, surrounding that trade. Yeah, and, and I think Burry was sort of betting against the S&P overall, yep. too, yep. which these days is kind of a bet against big tech. Right, exactly. So S&P and the QQQs, I should have said that. Yeah, he did yeah. both indexes, uh, had puts on both of those. Notional value for those trades uh, combined was about $1.6 billion. So pretty sizable, uh, you know, relative to the size of his fund. But again, we don't know if that's necessarily just hedging individual stocks or if it's an actual directional play, a directional bet on, you know, where he sees those two indexes going. Well, we just heard from somebody who thinks that the market can still run from here and, you know, somebody who's betting against it. So (laughs) that's what it takes to make a market. Leslie, thanks. Still ahead, cobalt, nickel, lithium, all critical for America's energy transition. But a new report out shows the massive spike in demand, courtesy of the Inflation Reduction Act, might be challenging to meet Because of the Inflation Reduction Act, we will explain and look at some of the companies operating in that space next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Tomorrow marks the one-year anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act. To mark the occasion, S&P Global out with a comprehensive report on the IRA's impact on demand for critical minerals like lithium, nickel, and cobalt. S&P Global's Dan Jurgen is here with a first on CNBC look at the report, how it's turbocharging demand and the challenges to meet that demand. But first, our Pippa Stevens with a look at some of the companies hoping to fill the gap. Pippa. 
Well, John, one year after the Inflation Reduction Act, one of the most noticeable impacts is the development of what's being called the Battery Belt, stretching from Michigan and Ohio through Kentucky and down into the Carolinas and the Southeast. Companies are rushing to build out U.S. supply chains for electric vehicles and energy storage, spurred by tax incentives and manufacturing credits, as well as domestic content requirements. First, you've got the lithium miners and processors like Albemarle, Liven, Piedmont, and Lithium Americas. They're investing heavily into U.S. operations. Then there's battery manufacturers like Panasonic, LG Energy Solution, Hanwha, and Fryer, all of which have announced U.S. factories. The automakers themselves, like Tesla, Ford, and GM, are also now playing a more active role by partnering with miners and suppliers directly in an effort to source supplies. But a battery factory can be built much faster than a new mine, and some are warning there won't be enough raw materials to support ambitious EV and energy storage goals. This is especially true as mineral sourcing requirements become stricter over the next few years, John. So what's going to happen here? Is it going to cause an increase in the price uh, of, of these um, minerals, or is it going to mean that they've got to change the scope of the law? Well, the parameters around the free trade agreement is really important because it means that we can source minerals from outside the United States. But I think a lot of changes are going to have to happen, not just in the U.S., but structurally, because if we look at China, they control more than 60 percent of the lithium refining supply chain. And the reality is that the, the costs there were cheaper. So they have a lock on a lot of these markets. And it's not just the U.S. It's also Europe and other players that are also looking for alternative supplies. But certainly in, in the near term, we are still waiting on clarity from the Treasury Department over things like what qualifies as a foreign entity of concern. Mm. So for right now, I think the industry is very much still waiting on those final guidelines and then going to take next, next steps from there. Yeah, a lot of details to work out here. Pippa, thank you. Let's talk through some of them. Uh, turn to Dan Jurgen and S&P Global's new report projecting demand for lithium, nickel and cobalt is going to increase 23-fold by 2035. The report also highlighting, as Pippa just mentioned, that meeting that demand is going to be a challenge under the IRA's sourcing requirements. Dan Jurgen, welcome. So um, this reminds me of No Child Left Behind, right? I used to cover education. And it's like you have these standards that look good on paper, but they actually get harder and harder to meet over time, and eventually something breaks. Is that what's going to happen here? Well, I, I think actually uh, you, you've got it. I mean, we count over $400 billion of commitment to investment, of which Piper showed some of that on batteries since the IRA. But that means many, many billions of dollars of additional demand for minerals, which are the building blocks of the energy transition. And the challenge here, uh, as you say, is that the sourcing requirements are on top of the increased demand. And the sourcing requirements are basically meant to reduce that dependence on China, which has such a preponderant position in the entire supply chain for minerals. So what's going on right now is to figure out, well, how do we, you know, we only can do things with free trade countries. So do we get some kind of quasi-free trade agreements with Europe and Japan and other countries that will enable uh, some flexibility so that these very rigid uh, requirements don't lead to a shortage? Well, on the surface, it would seem like the thing to do is bet, okay, well, these uh, minerals are going to be in great demand, and so surely the price of them is going to go up. So, you know, trade commodities and bet that the price is going to go up. But this is a global market, and not everybody's got these same restrictions. So is that necessarily going to happen? Is the price of these minerals necessarily going to rise? 
Well, uh, let me put it this way. There's certainly going to be pressure on supplies. One of the things in our study, which was very dramatic, we looked at 127 mines that have been built, uh, uh, and we saw that basically if you started today a major mine for minerals, it would not come online until the 2040s. So that tells you if you're going to have all this demand really increasing, there's going to be pressure on supply, and then that means competition, not only with China, but also with Europe. And we have to work around these FTA things in order to achieve these goals. So that's why we say it really is a big challenge. And getting the rules to function is going to be very significant to be able to attain these goals. How great is the risk that we're wrong about what demand is going to be like in 12 years? Could technology shift in such a way that some of these minerals are less in demand? Not that there's no demand for them, but less in demand than we today expect. That's a great question, and I think with any forecast, it's a very good thing to always say, what will you be wrong about? So what would make uh, this these kind of expectations? Number one would be much slower economic growth, kind of disruption in the world economy, the kind of breakdown of globalization. Number two would be, there'll certainly be a drive for recycling, but that's going to take time uh, and uh, and money to do it, and also permitting issues. So the thing that you're pointing to is innovation, because certainly what's out there is find an alternative solution. And I think um, even as you know, it's flashing red for automakers and others, where do you get your supplies? People are going to be looking at what are the alternatives? How else do we work around this? And this may come, you know, may come from left field and, and surprise us. But we are dealing with a fairly short time frame, mm -hmm. and innovation generally takes longer than that. But the Incentives are certainly there. So let's talk about lowering investors' risk here then. It seems like the best bet would be on uh, you know, companies that invested in mines that are going to come online within the next three to five years. And probably the technology and demand picture it might not change that much over the near term. So regionally and even when it comes to uh, companies, do you have a sense of who's got the most mines for these critical minerals that are about to come online, but not online yet? I wouldn't want to get into, you know, specific companies, but I think what you've seen is uh, the miners, the big miners are, are focusing on optimizing output from existing mines. Uh, they're going to be looking at acquisitions, uh, add-ons and so forth. And there doesn't seem to be, you know, there's not a big appetite, maybe this goes to your point, to really start big new mines somewhere in the world, because also these involve long negotiations with governments. Permitting is not only an issue in the United States, it's an issue around the world. So I think it's going to be people who uh, optimize. I've been with smaller miners uh, in the United States. I was at a meeting with them recently in Washington. And, you know, what's holding them up are the permitting challenges, uh, which seem to be endemic to every part of the uh, energy, uh, energy spectrum. Indeed. Um, and it makes me wonder if there are any you know, countries on the bubble who might be encouraged to make a free trade agreement based on this. But I guess we'll see. We'll have to leave that for another time. Dan Jurgen, great insight. Um, thank you from S&P Global. Speaking of materials, do not miss our exclusive interview of the CEO of Smark. We're going to talk about the bid that they are making to buy U.S. steel. That's 4 p.m. Eastern on overtime. And that'll do it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. 
ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. 